I next met with Dr. Joseph Sperano from the Albert Einstein Cancer Center, and to begin, I asked them to discuss the so-called positive trial. The objective of the trial really is to determine the safety of getting pregnant and carrying a pregnancy to term and its impact on breast cancer recurrence. So the target population is women of childbearing potential who are in the midst of a course of endocrine therapy and who intend to get pregnant and have a child. And so rather than this occurring in isolation without collecting the information, this is being done in a structured way in the context of a clinical trial where the information is being collected and the outcome for the patient and the child are being tracked. So the primary objective really is to determine what's the recurrence risk for patients who elect to have a pregnancy while they would otherwise be in the midst of adjuvant endocrine therapy. You know, one of the issues, of course, when you talk to a patient in this situation is what the actual risk is, baseline, and then where they are, I guess, in the treatment. What about this lady that you put on? Where was she? What was her situation? She was a young woman in her early 40s who already had a child and was interested in having another. And she was moderately high risk, was about a year and a half into ovarian suppression and an aromatase inhibitor. And when I saw her several weeks ago and enrolled her in the trial, we began the process of withdrawing the adjuvant therapy. In terms of trying to counsel a patient, I'm sure you've done this outside of this trial setting many, many times. I guess one of the questions is, is there a risk of the pregnancy itself and something about the hormonal changes that occur in pregnancy? And then the other would be, is there a risk in interrupting hormonal therapy, particularly, let's say, before five years? And I'm kind of curious, knowing that we don't have perfect answers, if you have an educated patient, maybe even a physician as a patient, who asks you about those two things, A, is there a potential adverse effect of pregnancy itself, and B, what do we know about the risk of having shorter-term endocrine or interrupted endocrine therapy? How do you go through that with them? Well, there's definitely a risk of interrupting endocrine therapy, no question about that. And that's the downside, and that's the definite risk. It's difficult to quantify, but on average, endocrine therapy reduces the risk of recurrence by about 50%. So you would lose that benefit, obviously, if you stop therapy. That's the downside. The good side is that if the patient gets through that period of interruption and resumes endocrine therapy, it appears that endocrine therapy is still of benefit. You don't lose the benefit if you reinitiate therapy. So that addresses the question of the endocrine therapy itself. The second question about the pregnancy, does that confer an additional risk? I don't think we really know the answer to that question, and we may never know in a quantifiable way where we can isolate that risk. What we do know is that pregnancy is associated with an increased risk of breast cancer. That risk is generally within the first five years, and because it's generally young women who get pregnant whose baseline risk of developing breast cancer is very low, it turns out to be a very low absolute risk in absolute terms. Of course, the flip side of that is that pregnancy is protective against breast cancer, but that protection doesn't really begin until the individual is about five years or so after their pregnancy. And multiple pregnancies also have additive protection. So it's a complicated issue in terms of dissecting this all out. But in individuals and women who have no breast cancer history, as I said, pregnancy is associated with increased risk early on, but then later it actually is protective. I want to shift our discussion towards the use of genomic factors in breast cancer management. 
Before we talk about invasive disease, how about DCIS and specifically the seven-gene signature recurrence score that's been developed? The DCS score is a seven-gene signature. It's driven by five proliferation genes, PR, and another gene that was developed and then prospectively validated for the first time in the E5194 cohort. This was a woman with largely mammographically detected DCS who had a tumor less than one centimeter that was high grade or less than 2.5 centimeters that was intermediate or low grade. They underwent wide excision and they were followed for recurrence. They did not have radiation. In the midst of the trial, the results of the B24 trial became available, showing a potential benefit from the use of adjuvant tamoxifen in that setting. And the trial was modified, the 5194 trial was modified to allow adjuvant tamoxifen at the discretion of the treating physician. So there were about 650 or so patients enrolled in the trial. The primary results were reported. It was shown that the risk of recurrence of DCS at five and seven years was in the range of 10 to 15 percent. So it was higher than what we had hoped it would be. About 30 percent of the women in the trial received adjuvant tamoxifen. A subset of those women where we had the tissues available, 327, who had clinical characteristics similar to the overall cohort, were evaluated in a prospective, retrospective way by applying this seven-gene signature, the DCS score. It was found that about 70% of the patients had a low-risk tumor, as pre-specified by the DCS score. So 70% were low-risk, 30% were intermediate or high-risk. It turns out that the 10-year risk of an ipsilateral breast event, which was defined as either DCIS or invasive cancer, was about 10% in the 70% of patients who had a low DCS score, and about 25% in the patients who had an intermediate or high DCS score. So what this tells us is that for patients who have low-risk clinical features, as was in this trial, who are treated with wide excision without radiation, who may or may not receive tamoxifen, Overall, you'll have somewhere in the range of a 15 to 20% risk of having a breast event at about 10 years. And what the score does is that it allows you to more accurately classify or predict who is going to have an event. If you fall into the 70% of patients who have a low score, you have about a 10% risk of having an event. If you're in the 30% who have an intermediate or high score, your event rate's more like 25%. And so that's a group of patients for whom radiation is probably wise, and this is probably not a group of patients who should be spared radiation. Now, for the low-risk group, we know from other studies that no matter what the underlying risk of recurrence is in DCS, that radiation is going to reduce that risk of recurrence. So this cohort and this trial and the assay was not designed to identify a group of patients who don't benefit from radiation, but it does provide prognostic information to select who would be a candidate who would most likely benefit from radiation. And I should say also that the score was validated in a second cohort, a population-based cohort. And do you utilize this assay in your practice? I do utilize the assay in my practice. It's mainly ordered and used by radiation oncologists to make their decision about the use of radiation. I'm curious, you know, you get up to 25%. Do you think it's also something that maybe could be considered in a patient who might be thinking about mastectomy? The factors that drive a decision that relate to mastectomy, I think, are more driven by the extent of the disease and the surgical considerations and the patient's fear. Now, having said that, 
if you have a patient who is a candidate for wide excision, who's had a wide excision, and they have a DCS score that's high, and therefore is someone who would more likely to benefit from radiation, then that patient, if they really don't want radiation, if they really want to avoid radiation, that patient could use that decision to have a mastectomy. Well, I was thinking about the fact, I mean, what would your best estimate be if you gave radiation therapy to a patient with a high-risk score, how that would reduce it? How low do you think it would reduce it to? Well, on average, if you look at the meta-analysis and all the studies in their totality, radiation reduces the risk of having an event by about one half. So that's what I was thinking. And then, so you're saying to this woman, you know, okay, we're going to give you radiation therapy, but you're still going to have a residual risk on top of that of more than 10%. seems like if I were a woman in that situation, it might make me think more about mastectomy for that reason, just not to have to go through that experience. I think one of the issues is, is that the outcomes are really good for patients with DCAS. So obviously we want to be able to adequately treat the patient with as little therapy as possible and to minimize over-treatment. And that was really what drove the 5194 trial design, right? We were trying to avoid the use of radiation based on the clinical features, the best available clinical features that we had at the time and that we still have. And what we found was that the event rates were still high if we spared radiation based on clinical features alone. So I think for those clinicians and for those patients who wish to spare radiation, this can be a useful test that can help them make a more informed decision about what's the most appropriate choice for that particular situation. Maybe you can talk a little bit about this 56-year-old lady and how she presented. This is a woman who actually had a clinical stage 3B ductal carcinoma of the right breast. It was mammographically detected, but quite extensive. It was palpable, but on exam, the tumor measured probably about 3 by 3 centimeters. So the mammographic appearance was more extensive than what we saw clinically. So we felt that she was a candidate for neoadjuvant systemic therapy. And because her tumor was HER2 positive, we employed a regimen that included dual anti-HER2 therapy with trastuzumab and pertuzumab plus docetaxel and carboplatin. Clinically, her axilla, she had N1 disease, so she did have a palpable node of about one centimeter, and FNA was positive for that. So this lady also then had a palpable node that was biopsy positive. So she's T3N1M0 and being HER2 positive and her ERP are also positive. She got the most common approach to a patient neoadjuvantly with HER2 positive disease in that she got both trastuzumab as well as pertuzumab with chemotherapy. How did she do with the treatment? She, in the first few cycles, tolerated pretty well, but the fourth cycle was complicated by severe diarrhea, renal insufficiency, requiring hospitalization, about a five-day hospitalization. And when I saw her come in for cycle five, she really hadn't fully recovered. And I was very concerned about the episode of renal insufficiency. Was that renal insufficiency related to volume depletion from the diarrhea or from some other Yeah, reason? it was probably ATN related to volume depletion and dehydration. And then what was your take on what the diarrhea was from? You should get in four different drugs. Yeah, I think it was an effect of the pertuzumab and trastuzumab, particularly the pertuzumab. Yeah, I've heard that in general as a monoclonal antibody, pertuzumab is pretty well tolerated. Do most of your patients who get pertuzumab have diarrhea? Most of them have some diarrhea, some severe. And in some, it's been a rate-limiting factor where it's forced me to 
discontinued the pertuzumab. But when she came in, she had had a good clinical response. Her breast tumor was really no longer palpable. Her node was no longer palpable. The surgeon wasn't quite ready to operate on her, and she wasn't quite in good enough shape to be operated on. So I discussed the options with her, and, and what we decided to do was to treat her with trastuzumab and pertuzumab alone for cycles five and six, which she tolerated well. Could you kind of just put in perspective, you know, particularly for surgeons who you know, aren't seeing patients like this all the time, what the risk is of something like this happening. And when you have a otherwise healthy younger patient gets, you know, short-term chemotherapy, neoadjuvant, adjuvant therapy, ending up in the hospital for five days, you know, if a patient were to ask you, what's the likelihood that that's going to happen to me, what would you estimate? Well, of course, it's very regimen dependent. For this particular regimen, it's in the range of about five to 10%. Hmm, that's pretty substantial. So she had this great response, and she went to surgery? She's actually not gone to surgery yet, but she has tolerated cycle five and six very well. And based on the fact that her tumor is ERPR positive, we do expect that there will be some residual disease, but we know that she'll benefit from at least a five-year course of endocrine therapy and from additional anti-HER2-directed therapy, possibly also some chest wall radiation after her mastectomy. So each of those factors will reduce her risk of systemic and local recurrence. So you referred to the ERPR status in terms of responding to chemotherapy slash anti-HER therapy. What do we know, rather than endocrine therapy, in this case neoadjuvant therapy, what do we know about the complete path response rates in ER positive and ER negative disease when they get chemo anti-HER therapy for HER2 positive disease? Sure. Well, first of all, if you start with the HER2 negative population, if you have ERPR negative disease, in other words, triple negative disease, with a typical anthracycline taxane sequential combination, you would expect a pathologic complete response rate in the range of about 35%, maybe 40%. It's substantially lower for ER positive HER2 negative disease. It's more like in the range of 10 to 15%. Patients respond clinically. They have a good clinical response. Some of them may even have a complete clinical response but we almost always find residual disease at the time of surgery. If you're dealing with someone who has HER2-positive disease, there the overall pathologic complete response rates are higher, but they're particularly high if you're dealing with someone who has ERPR-negative HER2-positive disease, where with the TCHP regimen, your pathologic complete response rate can be in the range of 80 to 85%. If the disease is ER-positive, it's more like in the range of about 30 to 35% which is higher than someone, say, who had HER2-negative disease that was ER-positive treated with chemotherapy alone. Let's go on to your next case, a 47-year-old woman. So this was a 47-year-old premenopausal black female who presented with stage 2B ductal carcinoma of the left breast, had a wide excision, and a central lymph node biopsy with one of three positive central nodes with a 5-millimeter macrometastasis. The primary tumor was 2.1 centimeters. It was of intermediate grade. It was strongly ERPR positive, but HER2 negative. Based on her young age, the fact that she had a T2 lesion and a node positive disease, I recommended adjuvant chemotherapy. We ordered an Oncotype DX recurrence score, and it was low, 13. We discussed the options and also reiterated the fact that chemoendocrine therapy was still a recommended standard of care in her case but that she might be someone who may not drive as much benefit from chemotherapy as we would normally expect or hope. 
And after discussing the options, this patient elected to receive endocrine therapy and, of course, radiation therapy, but deferred chemotherapy. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about this woman herself and, you know, what she was thinking, what kind of background she had, what her thoughts were about chemotherapy. Well, I think like many young women, she, someone who would like to avoid chemotherapy if possible and the potential side effects, both short-term and long-term of adjuvant chemotherapy, but was willing to endure it and receive it if she knew that it was going to be beneficial and that there was a good chance of it being beneficial. She also understood that the stakes were high, that chemotherapy prevents a recurrence and that a recurrence in distant organs is a catastrophic event, that the disease is treatable in that situation, but it's not curable. So I could tell you that I've seen other patients in this circumstance with the same information who've elected to receive chemotherapy. So it's a very individual decision. We will have, I think, a much firmer database, evidence base upon which to make recommendations once we have the results from the Taylor X trial, once we have the results from the RX Bonder trial, in particular for this particular situation. And I want to go through the data sets that underlie the decision and the future data coming out and you know, really take a step back and think about here we are talking about a 47-year-old woman with one positive node and not getting chemotherapy. Very interesting. Now, she did not have an axillary node dissection, correct? Correct. So she's like a typical ACOSOG Z11 situation. Do you think if you knew she had, let's say, four positive nodes, you would have thought it through differently or she would have? Regarding the chemotherapy decision, for sure, yes. And I may not have actually ordered an oncotype in that circumstance, because I think the overwhelming evidence would have suggested that this is someone who definitely needs chemotherapy to reduce their risk of recurrence. But here, and I'm not sure I would have ordered an oncotype on this patient, say, 10 years ago, when we were just beginning to order the test and we had the information based on other studies, 8814 study, for example. So I think that this case does exemplify how things have changed over the last decade and how, because of our decade-long experience about using this assay and other assays to provide prognostic information in situations mainly in node-negative disease, we've gotten a greater comfort level with using the assay in women who are at higher risk of disease based on anatomy, that is, the extent of nodal involvement. So I know there are algorithms to try to predict whether or not there would be more nodes positive. What would be your estimate in terms of the likelihood that she really has a total of four nodes positive? One would need to know specific details and plug that information into the algorithm. And we went through that exercise in this particular patient, and her risk was low. In addition, we knew that she was going to be getting radiation therapy. So for that reason, we elected not to do the completion axillary dissection. Let's go through some of the data and trials that, you know, sort of were the foundation for this woman's therapy, beginning with the Taylor X trial that you are the principal investigator of. Can you talk about this study? Sure. So the Taylor X trial targeted patients who had node-negative, ER-positive, HER2-negative disease that had a tumor of at least 1.1 centimeter, to be exact, of any grade, or high risk, that is intermediate or high grade T1B lesions, were between the ages of 18 and 75 and for whom no partial breast irradiation was planned. This is a population where, based on NCCN guidelines at the time that the trial was activated in 2005, where chemotherapy was either recommended or at least should be strongly considered. So the patients were pre-registered. If they met the eligibility criteria, they underwent oncotype D3 
DX testing. And then after the result was available, they were then registered onto the trial, onto one of three arms that was based on their recurrence score. So the trial was designed primarily to determine whether chemotherapy was beneficial in women who had a mid-range or intermediate recurrence score. And that was the primary study group. We defined that as a recurrence score of 11 to 25. And those patients were randomly assigned to receive chemoendocrine therapy, the standard arm, or endocrine or hormonal therapy alone, the experimental arm. And just to clarify the point you made before, I think it's so important. A lot of people maybe new to oncology don't realize, which is, you know, as you said, prior to that time, I think it was the 2000 NIH consensus conference, pretty much the standard of care was if the tumor is a centimeter or greater, chemo, even no negative. Yes, absolutely. That guidance was published, as you said, about 2000, 2001. So this was the default position at that time. So we're still waiting for the results of the randomized arms, of course. There was also a high-risk registry, so patients who had a high recurrence score were recommended to receive chemotherapy plus endocrine therapy. And those patients who had a low recurrence score, very low, which we defined as less than 11, were assigned to receive endocrine therapy alone. We now know the results of the low-risk registry. There are about 1,600 patients enrolled. And at five years, there was about a 1% risk of distant recurrence in that group. So in other words, a low enough risk of recurrence that that patient population would not likely benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy, particularly since we know that the benefit of adjuvant chemo is primarily in preventing early recurrence within five years of diagnosis. And I guess, as you say, we're waiting for that randomized section of the trial. The other thing that's out there cooking is a so-called RxPonder trial. Could you explain what that is? Yeah, the RxPonder trial is targeting patients with ER-positive HER2-negative disease who have one to three positive axillary nodes, so clearly a group of patients in whom chemotherapy is recommended. And they also undergo Oncotype DX testing. If their recurrence score is greater than 25, they receive standard chemotherapy, endocrine therapy. And if it's less than 25, they're similar to Taylor X, randomized to chemoendocrine therapy versus endocrine therapy alone. How about this Plan B trial? The Plan B trial is a trial that has been completed and reported. It targeted patients with HER2-negative breast cancer, patients less than or equal to 75 years of age, who either were node positive or high-risk node negative. The high-risk features included T2 or greater lesions, intermediate or high-grade, hormone receptor negative status or age less than 35, or high UPPI1 marker. And there was a randomized component of the trial where patients who were high risk were randomized to receive either six cycles of docetaxel and cyclophosphamide or sequential epirubicin cyclophosphamide followed by docetaxel. Those high risk patients who were randomized to one chemotherapy regimen or another included those who were hormone receptor negative or those who were hormone receptor positive and had high risk features, which they defined as having at least four positive axillary lymph nodes or having zero to three positive axillary nodes and a recurrence score of more than 11. So what's the message that you take away from this study? I think the message is that patients with a low recurrence score, we know from Taylor X, who have ER positive HER2 negative disease, node negative disease, have an excellent prognosis at five years with just endocrine therapy alone. What this study tells us is that the same may be true for patients who have up to three positive axillary nodes. Although, you know, there's kind of a, I don't know, maybe it's psychologic, but 
you know, my mind is kind of different to have a 98, 99% recurrence free as opposed to 94%. And I know there's a lot of right. scatter and all, but that starts to get into the area that you start thinking about chemo. Yes, it's important to point out that the endpoint that they used was disease-free survival, which included not only recurrence, distant recurrence, but local recurrence and contralateral breast cancer. And this five-year disease-free survival of 94% is actually exactly what it was in the TaylorX low-risk registry. It was 93.8% in the TaylorX low-risk registry, but the recurrence rate was only about 1%. So most of those other events were actually contralateral breast cancers. Ah, I see. Okay. Or other that, events. So that really is fascinating. Well, I'm hoping you're going to be able to be the first person to explain the MindAct trial results to me and so in a way that I can understand. But any, I can tell you your colleague, Bill Gratishar, is struggling with it. So we're both looking to you to talk a little bit about it. Sure. Maybe you can kind of, first of all, compare what MindAct was looking at compared to, for example, the RX Ponder study. So the schema of the MindAct trial, it's a complex trial that was designed to try and address a number of questions. But it was a large study. It included about 6,700 patients. All of the patients had a clinical and genomic classification performed. The clinical classification was by the adjuvant online model. And a low risk, as projected by that model of 92% or lower, was considered a clinical low risk. And they also underwent the 70-gene assay, the mammoprint assay, which is a binary test and provides a result of high or low risk. So what they did was they looked at the proportion of patients where both the clinical and genomic risk was low. So there were 41% of the patient population had both a clinical and low genomic score. And about 27% of patients were high risk by both clinical and genomic criteria. The real focus of the study were the patients where there was discordance between the clinical risk and the genomic risk. 9% of the patients were clinically low risk, but genomically high risk. 23% of patients were clinically high risk and genomically low risk. So if one just looks at this and makes a decision in terms of recommending chemotherapy, one would recommend chemotherapy to about 50% of patients here just based on the clinical factors. If one used the genomic factors alone, then about 36% of patients would be recommended. So the take-home message here is that application of this test could result in a 14% absolute reduction in the need for chemotherapy. The primary endpoint of the study was the group of patients who had discordance that were clinically high risk, but genomically low risk, and who were randomized to receive no chemotherapy. Could I just say also, I guess we should keep in mind that unlike the Taylor X study that you were talking about and in the initial data from the Oncotype, this included patients with node positive disease. So when they call high risk, a lot of those are because they were node positive. Exactly. In fact, 48% of the patients in this group had node positive disease. And that's what often drives the adjuvant online model in terms of assigning a high risk. So in a sense, this is sort of similar to the TaylorX low-risk registry in that it's a group of patients who were identified and assigned a therapy, here no chemotherapy, just endocrine therapy, and were followed. And so it turns out that this was about 10% of the entire study population. And this was the primary endpoint of the trial. In terms of the timing of when this analysis would be done, 
it was pre-specified that this analysis, this primary analysis, would be done when the two conditions were met. When the standard error for distant metastasis-free survival at five years met a certain threshold, and when at least a third of the patients had been followed for at least five years. It turns out that when they reported it, about two-thirds of the patients had been followed for at least five years. And what this showed was that the recurrence rate, distant metastasis-free survival in this group, was about 95%, which was statistically significantly lower than the 92% that they projected. So they did meet the primary study endpoint. The primary statistical test for distant metastasis-free survival indicated that the primary endpoint was met. The patient population who were randomized was 48% node positive, 58% had a tumor more than 2 centimeters, about 30% had grade 3 tumors. The median age of the population was about 55. They also evaluated the outcomes in the overall group of 1,500 patients who were randomized to treatment by clinical or genomic criteria. And if one looks at the chemo versus no chemotherapy group for distant metastasis-free survival, there were 22 events in the chemotherapy arm, 37 in the no chemotherapy arm. That translated into distant metastasis-free survival rates of about 95% versus about 97%. The hazard ratio was 0.65, so it wasn't statistically significant. But it does suggest that there might be some benefit from chemotherapy here. And I guess that point was brought up by Cliff Huddis in the editorial in the New England Journal there. You know, it is, quote, not statistically significant, but you look at those numbers, there's a third reduction in hazard rate, and theoretically, it's a percent and a half absolute benefit. Any thoughts about that? Well, I think this trial does provide reassuring information that a multi-parameter gene expression assay, like the mammoprint, can provide additional prognostic information. In general, these assays are driven by proliferation genes and estrogen receptor signaling genes. So they're sort of driven by the same genes. On the other hand, they don't uniformly classify patients the same way. So it really comes down to two issues. One is which assay more accurately classifies the low-risk patients who have a very low likelihood of benefiting from chemotherapy? And secondly, is the trial adequately designed, at least the randomized component of the trial, to adequately exclude a benefit from chemotherapy. But at a higher level, in terms of the concept, the principle that the trial was testing, the principle that the trial was testing is, is classification by a genomic criteria or gene expression criteria better than clinical criteria? And I don't really think that's how these assays should be used because clinical criteria are actually pretty good, but they're not good enough. So we use these assays in a complementary way, not in a way that would replace clinical features. I don't think these assays were developed with the intent or should be, will ever replace clinical features. Their real intent is to be used in a way that complements and adds information to clinical features. From a practical perspective, first of all, are you using the 70 Dream signature clinically outside of a trial setting? Well, at my institution, I personally don't. There are other clinicians who do use it. I think when these assays were rolled out about a decade ago, one of the major advantages of the Oncotype assay versus the Mammoprint assay is that the Oncotype could be done on paraffin-embedded tissue in patients who already had surgery, whereas the Mammoprint had to be prospectively collected and fresh. The Mammoprint assay has been available now for a number of years based on paraffin tissue. So I think that was one factor that sort of drove 
greater use of the Anchotype early on. The second was that the assay, the Anchotype assay was prospectively validated in cohorts that really addressed the clinical utility of the assay. That is, as a predictive test to identify which patients derive the greatest benefit from chemotherapy. In other words, it was tested in cohorts of patients who were randomized to chemotherapy or not. That is the B20 trial and the 8814 trial. So that really provides the highest level of evidence supporting the clinical utility of an assay, at least with regard to its predictive power. And you know, I was just flashing on one of the first CME projects I ever did. I don't know, it must have been 100 years ago, but was we tried to put together every prognostic model. This is before Oncotype that was out there to predict prognosis in breast cancer. And we would, you know, it was like, I think we used the computer, but there were so many prognostic assays. But as you said, the big thing that Oncotype was different was in terms of the effect of chemotherapy. And, you know, even after this description you gave of the trial, in a way, I still have a little bit of trouble looking at this. But when I try to look at the paper and I look for, you know, this issue of chemotherapy, you see one of the things we just went through was the clinical high genomic low, where you see it looks like a little bit of a benefit of chemotherapy. And then the other thing is that I think it was the genomic high clinical low, I think there was no benefit of chemotherapy. Am I remembering that right? Yeah. Again, the randomization here is not a truly randomized study because the randomization is a chemotherapy based on the genomic criteria or the clinical criteria. So it is a difficult concept to wrap one's head around. But I think, again, the underlying principle, I think, is that these assays really should not replace clinical features. They have the greatest role in complementing clinical features. Well, I guess, again, you could imagine that, I mean, these are different genes that they're looking at, different assays. I've heard people say, well, they all give the same results, but it's one thing about prognosis and other thing to try to predict benefit from chemotherapy. And you know, who knows what the actual formula is that really does predict benefit from chemotherapy. But it's just kind of disturbing to see it not exactly playing out in this trial the way it played out with Oncotype. At least that's sort of the way it looks. I don't know. You tell me. Well, what's different about the MindAct trial is that it's a truly prospective trial. Right. That's true. Whereas the B20 trial and 8814 was a prospective retrospective validation of a biomarker in a trial that had already been completed. So, you know, the highest level of evidence is provided by truly prospective trials. On the other hand, I think experts do recognize that the evidence provided by prospective retrospective types of studies that are done in clinical trial cohorts, where you predefine the biomarker that you're testing and the parameters and the question, provide as high a level of evidence as a truly prospective trial. So I want to ask you about this poster, if you could comment on that. Yeah, this was a prospective registry conducted in Israel of a healthcare system that included 930 patients who had ER-positive node-negative disease and who were prospectively followed. The results of the Oncotype did drive decisions about the use of chemotherapy in that if the recurrence score was less than 18, only 1% of patients received chemo. If it was 18 to 30, 28% received chemo. And if it was at least 31, 85% of patients received chemo. And it shows that if the recurrence score was low, and again, all these patients, the vast majority of these patients just got endocrine therapy alone, and this is a higher recurrence score cutoff than what was in Taylor X. 
there was only a 0.5% risk of distant recurrence in five years, very low, not likely a recurrence rate that's high enough that one would benefit from chemotherapy. If the recurrence score was in the intermediate range, and again, this is a higher range than Taylor-X, of 18 to 30, the distant recurrence rate was about 2%, and that did reflect a mixed population of patients, most of whom actually, about 70% of whom got endocrine therapy alone, about 30% of whom got chemoendocrine therapy. And there was about a 4% risk of distant recurrence in the high recurrence score group, despite the use of chemo and endocrine therapy in the vast majority of those patients. Now, these patients were node negative? These patients were node negative. So this is another prospective study confirming the prognostic utility of the recurrence score, particularly low recurrence score. But it is interesting because people have commented on the New England Journal paper of the Taylor-X that you had with the low recurrence score, but there it was, what, 10 the cutoff was 10. And here, you're seeing the same thing with the more typical recurrence score, less than 18. Yeah. There's been considerable discussion and questions about, well, why was the recurrence score cutoff set at less than 11 for the low-risk registry? And we chose it for a couple of reasons. Number one, we wanted to design the trial in a way that minimized the potential that we were going to be undertreating patients. And I think there was a real question for patients who had a mid-range recurrence score about the benefit of chemo. Remember, this is back in 2004 or five where chemotherapy was a standard of care. So how do we pick 11? Well, a recurrence score of 11 in the B14 data set is associated with about a 7% risk of distant recurrence. The upper bounds of 95% confidence interval is about 10%. So that's a threshold that most clinicians would recommend adjuvant chemotherapy. So that's why we set less than 11 as the threshold and didn't pick a higher threshold. So I think that's a key point. We've described the rationale for that in a publication uh, review article by myself and Soon Paik in JCO in 2008. And I think it's important to understand what the rationale for that is. The other point that's also raised and discussed in that JCO paper review article is that when the NSABP reanalyzed their data using these cutoffs that we use in Taylor-X, less than 11, 11 to 25, and greater than 25, that the 10-year disease-free survival was about 95% in that mid-range recurrence score group using that cut point, irrespective of whether they got tamoxifen or tamoxifen plus CMF chemotherapy. This is the B20 study. So that provided some additional evidence and reassurance that this range that we chose for the randomization was appropriate. From your own personal perspective and your practice outside of trial setting right now, what do you consider a low recurrence score? Definitely less than 11 But I would say that I don't use, and I don't think clinicians should use a recurrence score alone in making clinical decisions. That one factors in other decisions such as the age, the tumor size, the grade, even the patient's concern about recurrence. There is a model that integrates this information, the RSPC score, where one can integrate the other clinical features in a model that has been validated, it's been developed by NSCBP and validated that can provide more accurate estimates about what the true risk of recurrence may be because it takes into account not just the recurrence score but the clinical features as well. Any comments about the study done with the NCI looking at SEER data and the use of the 21 gene recurrence score? It was a population-based study involving nearly 39,000 women, so it represents real-world situation. The primary endpoint they looked at was breast cancer-specific mortality they couldn't really look at distant recurrence. The SEER database that they were using doesn't have that degree of granularity. And they linked this database with the data regarding recurrence score. 
And what they showed was that the five-year risk of breast cancer-specific mortality for a recurrent score of less than 18, a low recurrent score was 0.4%. For the intermediate group, it was 1.4%. And for the high-risk group, it was 4.4%. So prospectively validating in a real-world situation, if you will, that the oncotype provides prognostic information, not just for recurrence, but for mortality. So these are not just patients who recurred, but recurred and died early. The proportion of patients who fell in those groups, 54% had a low recurrence score, 38% had an intermediate recurrence score, and 8% had a high recurrence score. The breast cancer-specific mortalities for each of those groups that I alluded to in the Kaplan-Meier curve, 0.4%, 1.4%, and 4.4% respectively. Starting with the low recurrence score group, the majority of patients who had a low recurrence score, nearly 20,000 did not receive chemotherapy. Their risk of recurrence was 0.4%. About 1,500 did receive chemotherapy, so a minority. Their risk of recurrence was about 7%. If you go to the mid-range recurrence score group, about two-thirds didn't receive chemo, about one-third did. The mortality risk at five years was about the same, 1.4%. And in the highest risk group, the majority of patients did receive chemotherapy, about two-thirds did, about one-third didn't and there was a lower breast cancer-specific mortality in those patients who received chemotherapy. So again, a real-world validation, if you will, of the prognostic information provided by the recurrence score, not as it relates to distant recurrence, but as it relates to breast cancer-specific mortality. You know, there's just so many things getting published nowadays that even though all I'm doing is trying to keep up, I have not seen this, and wow, it is really amazing. Just looking at that mortality curve, it's hard to believe. And the data from the patients being treated and with and without chemo is incredible. What an amazing paper. Yeah, one of the interesting things about this paper was that one normally assumes that older women do well, but one of the other important observations of this paper was that older women, when I say older, I mean 70 and above, who had high recurrence score had much worse outcomes than younger women. Of course, many of these patients didn't get adjuvant chemotherapy. But on the other hand, they were well enough for the clinician to have ordered the recurrence score. So it raises the question, are we undertreating older women? And I think it's a very important observation that requires more thought and work. Yeah, I saw that data. And, you know, the 70 being defined as older was really striking. I mean, to think people would approach, I mean, most 70-year-old people, I think, are pretty healthy. Yes, this, of course, the data reflected, I believe, the node-negative population, but this analysis also included patients who had positive nodes. And it also showed that the recurrence score provided prognostic information in groups of patients who had positive axillary lymph nodes. So I want to try to get to another one of your cases, and let me talk about this 50-year-old lady. Yeah, this was a 50-year-old postmenopausal woman with a history of a stage 2 ductal carcinoma of the right breast. She had a lumpectomy, a central lymph node biopsy, and an axillary dissection back in September 2008, when she was about 43 or so, genetic testing was negative. She had three of 27 positive axillary nodes. One of the nodes was quite large. It was about two centimeters. It was palpable on exam. The tumor was ERPR positive and HER2 negative. Treated her with dose-dense AC and weekly paclitaxel, and she received breast irradiation. And she took tamoxifen for about two years and then was switched to an aromatase inhibitor after menopause was confirmed. She stopped letrozole for about four months without informing me because of knee pain. And then when she saw me and I impressed the importance of it, and we determined that it was tolerable, 
that she resumed and seems to be tolerating it well now. And I've recommended that she receive at least a 10-year course of adjuvant endocrine therapy because of what I believe is a very high risk of late recurrence. I'm curious in general in facing this situation, a lot of people look at the clinical original risk in this patient, obviously with three positive nodes, but we have seen some data coming out looking at genomic assays in this situation. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the biology of this and whether or not you think genomic assays have a future in this situation. I think genomic assays may have a role, but I think for right now, clinical features are really quite prognostic for late recurrence. The outcomes for patients enrolled on the trans-ATAC trial looks at the annual hazard rates for recurrence segregated into two groups, patients who were node negative and had tumors two centimeters or less. All these patients received five years of endocrine therapy, generally including an aromatase inhibitor. The other group, patients who were node positive or had tumors more than two centimeters. And it really makes the point that clinical features that are prognostic for early recurrence, such as node positivity or a large tumor, are also predictive for late recurrence. But for me, the take-home message is that high-risk features for late recurrence include node positivity or a large tumor size. And so in general, I tend to recommend extended adjuvant therapy beyond five years or maybe longer in patients who are at high risk of late recurrence, such as the patient I described. It almost looks like that there's a bump after the endocrine therapy stopped in the node positive. Yes, and that's the rationale for extended adjuvant therapy that was first shown by the MA17 trial, showed that extended adjuvant therapy after a five-year course of tamoxifen, that taking an aromatase inhibitor after a five-year course of tamoxifen substantially reduces the risk of recurrence. And I think you're absolutely right. That bump is due to women coming off their endocrine therapy in both the high-risk group and the lower risk group as well.